Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Oh, great Father, we come before you. And with our whole hearts, we cry out that you would speak to us this very morning. Lord, that you would keep what you have promised, uh, you would said you would do in your word. Lord, that as we call to you, we find that you would save us from our sin and our sorrow, that we might be able to have the strength to be able to observe your law and your testimonies. Lord, that you would go before us, you would light our way, you would give us understanding of your word, that we might be able to understand and comprehend your greatness and what you have done and accomplished for us. Lord, let us meditate on your many promises which you have given us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I said before, we'll be Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Here now, as I read from Mark chapter 16. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. He rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands and they will drink any deadly poison. And it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. So, then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. While the Lord worked with them, and confirm the message by accompanying signs. In our last study, I mentioned that many scholars believe that the verses we just read, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20, are not original. Then Mark's gospel either ends at Mark 16, 8, or there was something that was lost afterwards. Now, now, without getting into too much detail, there are some major reasons why they believe this. There's two major lines of thought. That is external evidence and then internal evidence. External evidence is things like uh, early manuscripts. Any of the early manuscripts we have don't contain anything of Mark chapter 9 and following. They, they go to Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and then they stop and then go straight into the Gospel of Luke. Now this is one thing to be able to consider. 
But we also must consider that we don't have a lot of evidence during this time. Now you think about even just your receipts that you keep meticulously for tax audits and things like this. To be able to reconstruct a whole year's worth of purchases in receipts is quite a daunting task, to be able to preserve those receipts over a period of time. And maybe even more broadly, just think about preserving any important uh, information. We have a location where we keep our birth certificates and visa information for myself, social security cards. But even over time, these would fade. Centuries could pass, and although we don't have a lot of external evidence here, we must understand that we are looking at a different period where things uh, might not have been preserved throughout that time. Now, that does not mean we did not know the Word of God. We can see the trails of this preservation throughout history. Unlike many other, many uh, manuscripts have been preserved. The other external evidence we might look at is that of the early church fathers. We can retrace early church fathers and look at their information which they give, verses that they quote, and see what they would classify as Scripture. There's no reference to Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20. Now, we do need to understand that they did not quote all the Bible. So just because they didn't quote this doesn't then mean it's not Scripture. The other is internal evidence, and that is of these verses here. There are several things that will stand out, for sake of time, list but just a few. Now, Mark has introduced Mary Magdalene three times. Mark chapter 14, verse 40, in 47, and then in 16, verse 1 then you need to ask the question, why would then he introduce her in verse 9, and then why would he provide information that has not been provided before? Mainly the information about the seven demons. The second part of internal evidence is that there are many new ideas that are found here in these passages that are not found in other Gospels. But more importantly, they're not found in other Gospels, but they're not found in the the Gospel of Mark. So if Mark is the original author, why then would he write all these additional bits of information that he has not been trying to point out throughout? But I think thirdly, and I think this is one of the greatest pieces of evidence, I think, for me, is that out of these 12 verses, there is a hundred different words in Greek. Out of those a hundred different words in Greek, 39 of them are unique only to this section of Mark. 39 of those words do not appear throughout the Gospel of Mark in any other way. Mark has not used them before. Now often this argument is used in Paul's letters and things, but my argument in that is often they're small. That he uses few words in a whole letter. Whereas this is quite a large percentage. Almost 40% of the words are unique only to this section. So with this external evidence, this internal evidence, we might be able to then say that we, as I believe, I'm happy to talk to you 
I do not believe it's the original ending of Mark. But then that raises the question, what do we do about Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20? How do we treat this? Now, it's a great question. My approach will be that in Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20, although I might not think it's the original ending of Mark, I do believe, I think, it is biblical, and it, and it teaches biblical things. Often, I would say that people have the right theology, but then quote the wrong verse to be able to prove that right theology. Nothing is impossible for God. This is true. And they'll quote right theology and possibly quote the wrong verse. And I think that's what I hope to be able to show today. That is, Mark 9, verses uh, 16 to 9 to 20, is found in other sections of the Scriptures. We'll start by uh, turning over to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. Now throughout the Bible, we find out that Jesus died on the cross, He was buried in the tomb, He rose again on the third day, and there's a period of time from when He rose again from the dead and then when He ascended into heaven, where he met with his disciples. There is, in this period of time, at least over ten different times where he appeared to different people at different times. Mary Magdalene, the other women, Peter, the apostles, James. And we're even told that he met with over 500 people. Now Mark 16, 12-13 highlights a story which I think is found in Luke chapter 24. And this glorious story tells of one appearance of Jesus meeting with two disciples. Two men as they're walking to the road to Emmaus. In Mark chapter 16, verse 12, it says there's two disciples who are walking out in the country. And then Jesus appears to them. And during this time, they don't know that it's Jesus who walks along the road with them. And Jesus asks them, what happened? What, what is, why is everyone sad? And these men said, what have you been doing? Where have you been for the last week? Have you not read the newspapers? Have you not talked to anybody? Have you not heard of Jesus of Nazareth? How He died? And now He has risen? Some said that He has risen. And they tell this man what has happened over the last few days finished with the story of the women at the tomb. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. And they were at the tomb early in the morning. They did not find His body. They came back and said they'd seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. And then they're rebuked by Christ for their unbelief. Again, you see the the similarities between Mark and Luke 24. These two people walking along the way, and what are they rebuked for? Their unbelief. In Mark chapter 16, verse 13. However, he did not leave them there with no instruction, but we're told that he began to teach 
these things to the disciples we see in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning himself. One aspect of this story that I love is about how Luke records that Jesus teaches them the things concerning himself. Though at this point, the disciples have not clicked that it is Jesus who walks on the road with them, He still teaches them about who He is and opens the Scriptures to them. Even though they don't even comprehend that He's teaching them about Himself. So we see Luke chapter 24 as a connection to Mark chapter 16. The second thing that we see is Jesus appointed His disciples. You see this in Matthew chapter 28. So if you flip backwards to Matthew chapter 28. This refers to Mark chapter 16, verse 14 to 18. And verse 20. Jesus had not only taught His disciples during this time with these many appearances to these many people about His resurrection, but he also gave them a mission before he ascended into heaven. Now we often call this the Great Commission. There's two main reasons why we call it the Great Commission. The first is that word great. Great can have various different meanings. Some is about the size of something. There's this great big rock. But others, it can mean something small, but it is very valuable a great heirloom, or something like that. When we talk about the word great in the Great Commission, I think it has both the the scope of the size, but then also of the value. The, The size that the Great Commission speaks of the global task of the proclamation of the Gospels. The Christ's disciples are to go to all corners of the globe. They are to go and, and share this then most valuable message. Paul puts it beautifully in Colossians chapter 1. Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church. For which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with His energy that He powerfully works within me. Here He explains this this glorious, great commission of going. And what is this great commission? The mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. That everyone might be able to be mature in Christ. Gospel, this great commission is this riches of the glory of Christ in people. 
you and me. And the Great Commission is this great gospel message of this going into the whole world. Mark 16, verse 15 puts it this way. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Don't you get that size of that scope of that greatness of what this mission is? But then also the value of which we carry it. That good news. But not only is the Great Commission great, but it's also a co-mission. The co-mission, just as great has two parts, has two parts as well. That this mission is done to be done by believers. But the secondly, that this mission is to be done by believers with the help of Christ. Firstly, that this co-mission is to be done by believers. That this great commission cannot just be done by one person. One person cannot share the glorious good news with everybody in the whole world. It needs to be done with many believers going out and proclaiming of this great and glorious news. That it's a mission, but it's a mission given to multiple of people. That if everyone was to go and share the gospel to all creation as we're commanded to do, to share the good news with our, our loved ones, our neighbors, our colleagues, all that are around us. This is the work of believers. Like ants. You watch an ant and one ant can carry a small amount of food, actually a lot amount of food for their size of their weight, ten times their body weight. But it is how does a whole ant colony survive? It is not through one ant in particular, but through many ants going. This is what the Great Commission does. Is The commission is a commission to believers to go into all the world. But secondly, it's the co-part of the co-mission. That every individual person as they go needs Christ. The, the, the mission of, of telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ is utterly pointless if we do not have the Spirit who's going to work in the believer's hearts. In Mark, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you to be able to observe. But the Great Commission is not just that. The Great Commission is that, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. The Great Commission is that I've sent you out on this mission which is great in scope and size. You are but a believer carrying this great and valuable message, but I am yet with you. I am going with you. I have not left you by yourself. The co-part of the mission is the important part of the mission. The Spirit works and regenerates someone's heart. Mark 16 puts it this way. And these signs will accompany you, those who believe. In my name, you will cast out demons, you will speak in new tongues, you will pick up serpents with their hands, and you will drink any deadly poison. It will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now this might seem strange to our ears. 
You might know of some people who are snake handlers. Now we see all of these signs accompanying the apostles as they go on their mission in the book of Acts. They cast out demons. I mean, there's a long list. Acts 5, 16 is one. They're speaking new tongues. Acts 2, verse 4. And 10, verse 46. There's been bitten by a snake. Acts 28, verse 3 and 5. There are many healings. Acts 5, 8, 9, 28. Now the only one that cannot be found directly is the drinking of poison. However, James does make a comment in James 3, verse 8. But no human being can be tamed tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. Here, poison might not utter mean physical poison. You could say that uh, this restless evil of what James speaks about is what they're referring to in Mark. Now again, that great commission is that Christ is with them as they go and proclaim this good news. No one can then boast and claim that these signs are done because of what they have said or uttered. Paul and Barnabas, when they go to Lystra, they heal a man and crowd to be able to call them gods. He's going to be able to worship them. They don't respond by saying, yes, worship us, we are great. But they ask, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men. We like nature of you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from those vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. These signs always point to the Gospel message. They can only do these things because the Holy Spirit works through them. Christ works through them. The power of God. But the particular reason why these signs are given is that people might be able to believe the Gospel message. See this all throughout the Old Testament. It's when, when prophets are given a word from God, often there's a sign which accompanies that word from God. And that sign is to, to be that seal, that author's signature saying, this is my word. And the same is true for the apostles. The apostles, as they go and proclaim the good news to all people across the corners of the globe, they perform many signs to be able to accompany this message. Mark 16, verse 20 puts it this way. The Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Many people ask the question, what about signs today? Again, there's another rabbit trail you could go down, but we have no need of the sign. We have the sign from God. The complete Scriptures. We have no need for signs to be shown. The apostles didn't have all of the Scriptures for they hadn't been written yet. As Abraham said, what do we to, to uh, the, the rich man as Lazarus is on one side and he says, and he says, well, go and show my brothers if they know Lazarus is alive, he's raised from the dead, then they will believe your word. Abraham turns to him and says, they have all that they need. 
if they don't believe the prophets and Moses, then they won't believe at all. So now we don't need signs. Now, does that mean God does not answer prayer? No. God answers prayer. They might appear to be miracles, and they are because God is the one who answers them. But we can't expect those miracles as the apostles saw them in Acts. The last thing that we see is then Jesus ascended into heaven. Now if you flip backwards, uh, forwards to now Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 11. Jesus' earthly ministry begins in humiliation. Paul explains in, in Galatians chapter 4 that he's born of a woman under the law. But it finishes not in humiliation. He comes to this world as a baby, as an infant, born of a woman under law, but he leaves as a victorious and exalted Christ with his resurrection and ascension. Now he had done what he had come to accomplish. He had purchased the redemption of his people with his blood. And after making that perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God, He ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In ascending into heaven, He now gives gifts to His church. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he puts it this way, that He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we have all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, the mature manhood, and the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves that carried about every wind of doctrine and human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, and who whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, he makes the body grow, that it builds itself up in love. Christ had purchased his bride and given her all that she needs to grow up in every way into Christ. So we see that the gospel message does not stop when Jesus died or even when He rose again from the dead. But Christ did not cease to be our mediator. But He continues as the role of mediator between God and His people. He sits in this position of power and authority at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We do not worship a corpse in a tomb, nor do we worship a risen Lord whose body remained on earth. We worship a risen and ascended Lord. We can often explain what is accomplished for us in Jesus' death, possibly in His resurrection. But what then does His ascension accomplish for us? Didn't the Westminster Larger Catechism, answer 53, puts it very succinctly. Christ was exalted in His ascension and having after His resurrection often appeared unto the conversed and conversed with His apostles, speaking to them and the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, 
given them commission to preach the gospel to all nations. Forty days after his resurrection, he, in our nature, as our head, triumphing over enemies, visibly went up to the highest heavens, there to receive gifts for men, to raise up the afflictions thither, and to prepare a place for us where he himself is, and shall continue till his second coming at the end of the world. Here, just briefly, he, we find six things that Christ's ascension has accomplished for us. First, that Christ is our forerunner. He ascended into heaven as, in our nature as we as, in our, as our head. As we share in the resurrection like Christ's resurrection, we also go up to be with Him. The author of Hebrews explains that Jesus had gone to the Holy of Holies on our behalf. And as our head, He represents us. Remaining in our nature... Two natures, God and man, hypostatically united together. His ascension means that we have a great high priest mediating for us in heaven. Secondly, that his, his ascension shows the triumph over all of his enemies. After defeating an enemy and triumphing over them, he returned home. The king does not continue to live on a battlefield, but he returns home. Paul explains that he ascended on high and led a host of captives. Christ defeated death on the cross as proof of the resurrection, and he still triumphs over them. He has not needed to come to vanquish our foes once more. Thirdly, the triumphant king would not return with captives, but also he then gives prizes and gifts of war to the people. Christ from heaven gives gifts to His people. He distributes the gifts to His church that they might be able to have all that they need to be able to succeed. He gave His church apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Ultimately, He's giving the church this ministry of peace and reconciliation. Fourthly, to raise up our afflictions. Either. We seek these things above because that is where Christ is. Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. We should therefore raise our afflictions to where Christ is in heaven. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Fifthly, that Christ ascended to prepare a place for us. He is the great bridegroom, preparing a house for his bride. Christ is coming again. And when he does, he will take his bride that we might be able to be with him. And lastly, Christ is waiting. Christ has told us that he is coming back once more to be able to judge the quick and the dead. We await the second coming of Christ because heaven has received Christ until the time of restoring all things which God has told us by the prophets. So we see these simple truths throughout all of Scripture. That Christ appeared to His disciples. Christ appointed His disciples to be able to go. Christ ascended into heaven giving gifts to His disciples. All of these things are biblical. That they are glorious truths to be able to find in Scripture. That we might be able to ponder and meditate on them. 
Christ appeared to his disciples. I think that it is not Christ that waited in one spot for his disciples to come to him. He is the one that went to them to be able to appear to them. Christ appointed his disciples to the Great Commission. And mammoth, a great task in size and scope and value. But he did not leave them to do it by themselves. He gave the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, how he's to carry that out. The body of believers, to be able to do that across the globe, that he would be with them as they went. Lastly, as he sends them out to be able to go, to be able to carry this message, he's also victorious, sitting, ascended on the throne, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he equips everybody the work of the believers, to be able to carry that mission out as well. He gives them gifts. Thomas Goodwin puts it this way, having now dispatched the great work on earth for them, Christ hastens to heaven as fast as he can to another. And though he knew he had business yet to do upon the earth and would hold him forty days longer, yet to show that his heart was longing and eagerly desirous to the work for them in heaven. He speaks in the present test and tells them, I ascend. He expresses his joy, not only that he goes to the Father, but also he goes to their Father to be an advocate with him for them. Glorious truths we find in simple statements that Christ Ascended into heaven. The Christ, as the Gospel of Mark comes to an end, the Gospel message that Mark presents does not come to an end. This message is to be proclaimed, to send forth, speak of, of Christ's wonder and His glory. How He does not teach like the scribes who have no authority, but He has all authority given to Him on heaven and on earth. That He carries a simple message of, of come to Me. Have faith in me. That I came to be able to suffer, to die as a ransom of many. This gospel message, although the gospel of Mark ends, does not end. And it is up to us as his disciples to be able to carry that on as we proclaim it to all nations throughout all the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you, through Mark, carried his pen along as we recorded your earthly ministry here on earth. And we give you thanks and praise that we have this message to be able to proclaim. Lord, that we might be able to know who you are, not what people say you are, but know this within our hearts. Know that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God who died on the cross for our sins that we might be able to put all our hope and trust in You. Lord, not only that we know this within our hearts, but we proclaim this from our mouths. We would share this glorious good news with any who come across our path. We would do this with gentleness and respect. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com.
Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.